The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Take Cast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter, at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I'm joined by Andy. You probably know him best from Club Top Shot. He is uh, an Ethereum trader, someone with a, a very great and intricate knowledge of decentralized finance, uh, a, a, an early adopter of NBA Top Shot, of course, featured in the New York Times, uh, an expert. Uh, expert is the word I would use. I don't know if Andy would use the word expert on uh, non-fungible tokens. So so we had a pretty wide-ranging conversation, of course, about the great crypto crash of 2021. But then, you know, outside of that, you know, I think a much more interesting discussion on the functions of Ethereum in the real world, the functions of Bitcoin in the real world, and some of the potential future applications of decentralized finance and why we both view it as so important for the world moving forward. If you want to support the show, rating a review on iTunes is always helpful. Getting bonus episodes on patreon.com slash always useful, always very helpful. You can also sign up for Starstock Market, uh, which is a an online trading place where, where it's all digitized for sports cards, uh, and you can get a free $10 by using the promo code DavisMatic. Now let's go ahead and get into the show. All right, everyone, welcoming into the show Andy8052. You probably know him best from Club Top Shot. Uh, we had this episode actually planned out for a couple weeks, uh, but it, it feels like a, a very appropriate timing to do a super crypto-centric show because we just we just survived through the biggest crypto crash. I mean, in terms of actual dollars liquidated, that that is the biggest crypto crash ever you know even even yeah. more sorrow than uh than march of 2020 i mean that was it was wild yeah it was crazy i think for for me the the march 2020 uh liquidation was scarier because it was a, it was a lot more unknown at that point around covid yeah. and what was happening and so there was just there were a lot more moving pieces um but this one there was a, a whole lot of blood in, on the streets it was it was intense so so for me i actually felt the the other way because i i okay obviously i had to pull the trigger on a couple buys yesterday um but the the march 2020 crash to me felt like i did i don't understand what drove the crash on may 19th i don't and and you know there's a more complicated answer there about you know people trading on leverage getting liquidated and stuff was overbought to begin with because of Elon and Michael Saylor and so on and so forth. Like, I, I think there are a lot more complex reasons, but to me, the March 2020 crash was just people are scared. People are scared. Yeah. They don't, they don't know what COVID is. They don't know what it's going to do to the global economy. They don't know if they're going to have to tape the, their windows of their apartment shut to keep germs from getting in. Like it just, it was pure, it was purely fear-based. Whereas, you know, I mean, 
now this is because you know so much more about the stuff than I do. This is what I pieced together through for reading stuff yesterday. One, the the beginning reason for the crashes is the Elon stuff, but not not just because Elon was tweeting these things, but because so many people who didn't give who don't give a shit about Bitcoin or Ethereum and don't view these things as any different than than Dogecoin, right? It's just all about up only. They see they they buy originally have no ideological purposes and all they care about is up only. So it's it's no skin off their back to sell Bitcoin at a 15% loss. It's like, okay, I, I tried to gamble on this thing, I lost. I'm gonna move on to the next thing. But then that starts a cascade of people who are trading on leverage and and the way i understand it is once those people start getting liquidated basically they just have to sell at lower and lower and lower cascading prices and the there are not enough buy walls there to scoop up those liquidated longs is that close to true yeah that that is definitely i think What's interesting about the crypto market, because there's such intense leverage that people trade with and stuff, yeah. and people are just like degenerates and there's really no regulation around it, is uh, when, when there is a dip, the, sorry, I can move somewhere else because <laughs> my girlfriend is in an actual work meeting. Yeah, imagine having a real job where you can't just do podcasts at 10 a.m. At, at 10 a.m., um, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think that uh, kind of what happens is you have these people who are trading on high leverage who start to get liquidated. And so then, you know, the way that you close out a liquidation is you sell those things and they, like you said, you know, when you have to liquidate $10 billion or something, I think yesterday there were like eight and a half billion dollars or so liquidated, like naturally the price has to go down. And then right. there was also, I think, I think your point about uh, buyers who didn't really care to them and it was just another like uh, money game, like GME and, uh, mm -hmm. and all that is also really uh, important here because this is, you know, since 2017, I would say this is the first time where, the, where there, it feels as someone who works in this stuff every day that there was a huge influx of like non-crypto native people right. buying and, and getting involved. Uh, and so naturally a lot of them don't nearly have the, you know, the investment thesis that a lot, a lot of people who held through from 2017 to now do. And so they're much quicker to sell. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, and I, I have been holding this in the back of my head for a long time. Um, the, the fact that people can't go outside and even even if you are a person who's been trying to live your life more normally during all of covid like you know you or you got vaccinated early or you have friends and you go do stuff outside or you live in a city where there's you know some more stuff to do you know i know um like here in st louis there's a lot of stuff people are doing but in general there's just less stuff to spend your money on like i was i was thinking about this one of my big expenses pre-covid was like i love live music so i would just go to concerts all the time here in mm -hmm. St. Louis. Like if there was someone I would like, I'd go out, you buy the tickets, you probably go to dinner, you know, you, you get drinks, you do whatever. That's like, you know, it's like a 400, $500 night. And that that's just money you like, even if you were a person who, who was not like terrified of COVID or whatever, and was still doing things, that's just money you, you couldn't spend. And so I, this whole time I've been telling myself, 
there is going to be a course correction at some point when people are, are able to start diverting that income into something else, which is, uh, I don't, I, we don't need to talk that much about Top Shot because I think a lot of the things that have been said about where we are in the market there right now have already been said. But I think that is a huge thing with Top Shot ethereum nfts in general it's just that some of these money games right like like gme those those funds are being dispersed elsewhere and that was another contributing factor to all of that stuff plunging out yesterday is people didn't just like oh what am i going to spend this money on i'll buy 800 of ethereum right now like i i have other things i want to spend that money on yeah for sure i i think I, i'm i am extremely interested and I don't really have an answer for this to see, you know, so in general, I think that as a society, we are going to continue to get more and more online and yeah. kind of like a few of my, my larger like investment theses around crypto and stuff is that people as a society will become more and more online and like internet native as, as we uh, kind of continue evolving the the metaverse and gate just like gaming in general and no uh, doubt, social yeah. media and then also the people are going to continue investing more and more in alternative assets and like you saw that at the start of covid with uh, like the trading card market and then crypto obviously and, and top shot and nfts and that just that you know as as you get more digitally native it becomes easier and easier to uh, understand the value proposition of things that aren't just like Apple stock um, and, and that people will continue to buy those things. And so I think that COVID really, really expedited that because everyone was stuck inside. And so you, it forced you to be digitally native for almost all of your social interactions. And so it's going to be extremely interesting to see over the next couple of years as society gets back to normal and everyone's vaccinated. And like I was at a sports bar last night in New York that was at like pretty high capacity because New York just lifted, lifted, lifted all their laws and was yeah, watching the Lakers game. Oh yeah, it's awesome. Uh, and it'll be really interesting to see kind of how that push and pull plays out where uh, people start to get back to normal and how that influences a lot of different markets. Yeah. And I, I completely agree with the, the investment thesis and also the COVID expedition. Like I, I think that there are obviously there is a, a clear hunger for a way to make your money work for you in non-traditional ways because, you know, locking up money in a 401k for 40 years or whatever just seems a lot less palatable mm -hmm. right now, you know, as, as uh, you know, more, more dollars get printed, like, you know, 6% 6 a year in a, like a mutual fund thing might not even beat inflation at this point yeah. with, with how many dollars have been printed. And, you know, there, uh, this is a, a Bitcoin maxi community thing of, you know, uh, bringing up the, the ghosts of the Weimar Republic. And well, I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm necessarily there yet. I think there is kind of this intuitive understanding of even people who don't think of themselves as financially literate, that things cost more wages are not rising as things cost more traditional investment paths are not as profitable as crypto as you know e i mean even even the sports card market and and mm -hmm. things like that you know those were um quicker ways and also as the class gap grows and as the middle class shrinks and as you know kind of everyone uh in the western world is there are kind of two well you know three uh, income levels. You know, there is, there is like below the poverty line, there is comfortable, but you live kind of month to month. And if you lost your job, it would be 
a huge problem. And then, you know, like true, true wealth. And yeah. I think that the, the, I guess the biggest difference I see is that that comfortable, but you know, you, you certainly still need to work and you, you like, if you had a major health problem, um, you would, uh, you would, you, you know, because of the way our, our healthcare works, it would be, it would be massively terrible, massively terrible for you financially. I think that that class of people is thinking, is, is realizing that more than ever and mm -hmm. attaching themselves to speculation because they're like, look, I will never be rich unless I just get insanely lucky speculating on something like hard work and bootstraps is not going to get me there. Yeah. And I like, honestly, I, I mean, this is probably a lot of people say this is bad advice, but it's, I think it's like kind of the smart thing to do. Uh, like if, if you completely, if you are not I agree. Happy, if you are not happy with a normal nine to five job until you're 65 and retire, like you just have to become risk on and say, I'm going to spend the time researching whatever alternative markets I think I can have an edge in. And then I'm going to make some educated bets and either they're going to pay out or I'm going to keep working nine to five until I retire. And, and like I, to me, and this was like part of the reason I, it was so easy for me to get into crypto in the first place is after I graduated from school, I was like pretty significantly in debt and had an engineering degree. And so I knew I could, you know, work as an engineer and probably make a pretty good career and like, you know, have a good life. But I just was like, I feel like I can do better than that if I just kind of go all in on this. And I, I felt confident in that. And then kind of what I said, what I'd say to people is, you know, in the worst case, if all my Bitcoin and Ethereum goes to zero, I'm still a 27 year old guy who has an engineering degree and can, I can go get a job at a tech company and be just like another normal nine to five person. Yeah. And I mean, you, you drive at the point there, which is the, the point that many people can't get themselves to, which is, oh, if I, if I get this, to, if this goes to zero, you know, I've wasted all of this money. I've wasted all of this time and people are, are not comfortable taking on that risk effectively. Like, um, yeah. like I, I, you know, I, I work a, I work a nine to five and now I, my job is awesome and I, I love it. And even if I wasn't like, if I wasn't doing my job for a company, I would still be doing something similar to my job just because I enjoy it so much. But the, I know that this job will never make me like a, you know, a truly wealthy person, but mm -hmm. crypto might or speculating on these other things might. And so like, I, I feel, um, I, I feel like, I, I guess I kind of have a, a foot a little bit in, uh, in both worlds. So the, uh, the big thing, the, the original reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you was because I, I view you as very knowledgeable on the world of Ethereum. And obviously, uh, Ethereum, even a year ago, you know, Bitcoin would be talked about by big financial institutions, right? You, you'd get updates on Bitcoin in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you know, you, people would ask Jamie Dimon and Peter Schiff their opinions on, on Bitcoin all the time. But, but Ethereum was not as discussed. What, what do you view as the big driver of the Ethereum explosion into the popular investing space. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's a, a pretty obvious answer, but like, I, I mean, DeFi has just, and for anyone who's not familiar, that is decentralized finance, and it is like a a subsection of decentralized applications on Ethereum that are generally trying to replicate, remove middlemen, and like build on the current financial systems. Um, but but I think DeFi has definitely been the main source of that because it's just uh, it's sucked up an insane amount of capital over the last couple of years. 
maybe yeah. mostly over the last year even. So during the original crypto pump back in 2017, Ethereum, you know, it you couldn't do anything with it basically. Um, mm-hmm. It was it was speculative, just that you know, and and many people back then were buying it for the you know the up only reasons, the same way they were buying Bitcoin. Um, and I I was. I was actually probably even more into crypto back then during the original pump, you know, listening to all these podcasts, reading all the white papers. I, I'm, sh- I'm sure I lost plenty of money on, you know, shitty ICOs and, and random coins um, back Same. then just because I, yeah, it was, it was a total wild, wild West phase. And there were, I guess it's not true to say you couldn't do anything. You know, there were stuff like the auger markets, but the idea was that eventually there would be decentralized applications. The the DApps uh, is is what they're colloquially colloquially known as. Um, so what what changed from 2017 to 2020 to make the decentralized apps go from an idea to like actually functioning things that people could transact on? Yeah. So there were a few pretty pivotal things. I think uh, the first being so like in 2017. Essentially, Ethereum's use case was money for ICOs, uh, and like I'm pretty confident that was actually what drove most of the price action right. of Ethereum. Yeah. Was just you had to own Ethereum to buy into these ICOs, and all these ICOs were 100xing, and so everyone was buying Ethereum to 100x on these ICOs, um, which is just insane in retrospect now. Um, but a lot of them were focused on like thinking about it, really stupid stuff. It was like supply chain and like supply chain was so hot in 2017 and now like no one cares uh or or like i don't know there was, it was not very focused on financial markets and uh there were a few projects though that started back then uh who you probably a lot of people probably don't even know that they were around back then uh but so maker started back uh maker started actually not even being built on Ethereum, it was being built on uh, BitShares, I think mm-hmm. it is. Um, and they started, I think, in 2015 on like a forum, and they would just like OTC sell shares of of Maker to people for participating in like the governance calls and stuff. I wasn't a part of it at that point. Um, I didn't really understand it, to be honest. I, I had like I generally dismissed a lot of the the financial applications, mostly because I. Prior to to crypto, I, I was not insanely financial financially savvy. Yeah. Um. You know, I'm a tech guy. I, I didn't really. I had, I learned what options were like a few months ago, trying to figure out how strategic <laughs> options work. Yeah. It's not it's not my forte. Um, and so so Maker started back then, uh, and I don't think the average person realizes like just how important Dai is, and and Maker is to decentralized finance. Um. The, and for anyone who's not aware of what Maker does, Maker uh, is a collateralized loan system where you can uh, deposit, it started with just Ethereum, but now you can deposit several different uh, tokens or Ethereum and then borrow DAI, which is a stable coin pegged to the US dollar against that. And so it's like a pretty, you know, it, it's a, it sounds simple on the surface, um, but it's, it's a very complex it's pretty smart involved. contract system. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it allows you to, at the start, it was basically a way to take leverage. That was like the super basic version of it is, you know, you have Ethereum, you deposit it in here, you buy DAI, you use that DAI to buy more Ethereum. And there you go. Now you're, now you're leveraged long Ethereum. And that was its main use case for a long time. And so I think people kind of 
um, they they were you know short like a little short-sighted with their evaluations of maker and full disclosure i worked at maker for two years um but i think that was that was a, a huge part of it and so maker was around and building through all of that uh in 2017 and then alongside them you had uh the the lending markets which the two biggest ones are ave and, and compound and so ave actually started as a different token called eth lend uh, which you may or may not have heard of. They came, they came around, came around in 2017 and ICO'd, and but they were more like a, a local Bitcoin style thing where you would be. Right. Uh, it was more like a lot more involved. I, they they really found their their product market fit later on as they as they kind of turned into a money market, uh, and and then Compound it was in the same. Uh, they they came out. I don't remember one, um, but they were always always a money market. Um, and they've gone through some updates, but the so the, they they were around back then. But then the most important thing that happened was Uniswap, um, in my opinion. And Uniswap is a the decentralized exchange that kind of makes a lot of this stuff possible. Um, and so, like for me personally, as as a heavy crypto user and trader, I literally only use centralized exchanges to cash out money. I all only trade on decentralized exchanges at this point, and and that kind of all was made possible because of Uniswap blowing up and and uh, being as as good as it was. So let's let's zoom out a little bit and and talk about smart contracts because the 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 true fundamental difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum and there are many fundamental differences between the two you know the two currencies is the 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 ability of Ethereum to execute smart contracts. So to someone who is crypto curious but but not crypto native at this point can you explain how a smart contract actually works like on on chain when you enter into an agreement yeah so so smart contracts and and what ethereum enables is essentially uh, the ability for you to store executable code on ethereum and so then at that point that code that you stored on ethereum is uh, decentralized um, you know, depending on how the code is written, it can be trustless. Most of the big systems that people use are trustless, but obviously, you know, people can make scams and stuff that look trustless, but they're not. Um, and then at that point, you have public auditable code that anyone can use that's unstoppable because it's deployed onto a decentralized network. Um, and it can function essentially like the back end for any, any application that you want. So you know, when you use Uniswap, you send your money to a smart contract and that smart contract converts that money into a, into a, a different token. Or when you borrow USDC on Compound, you know, you're depositing wrapped Bitcoin into a smart contract and then that smart contract is trustlessly giving you USDC. Um, that's a general, very high level overview of how they work. Um, right. And so this this is the promise of Ethereum, and this is why people like me who were very into Bitcoin for a very long time have started to get more into Ethereum, have started buying more Ethereum, have started looking into these processes because Bitcoin basically does one thing, and it does it very well. It is, it is trustless money. You buy it. There's only 21 million of them. 
there's not a centralized board of anything making any decisions, right? It's, it's a consensus amongst miners. Um, the, now the code, the, the, I guess that is a misconception is the code of Bitcoin is worked on um, mm-hmm. by individuals all, all the time. But, but by and large, it is, it is a, a, it's sound money. It fights inflation. Um, and, and that is why so many people love it. But the, the promise of Ethereum is that it can replace processes that exist in the real world right now that are a gigantic pain in the ass and that mm-hmm. are a waste of energy and a waste of money. So the example that I have been giving to people because I think it's something that most people in my life can understand is because I, I, you know, obviously I've shilled Bitcoin to a lot of people mm-hmm. in my real life. And so these people, you know, they'll ask me questions about, you know, fucking Doge or Shiba Inu or whatever. And I'm like, I have nothing to give you on that, but I can yeah. give you something. I can give you something on Ethereum. And this is the example I've been given is you enter, you enter into a smart contract platform with the person who rents you your house and you, you enter into this smart contract and there are, obviously I am projecting a DAP that doesn't exist yet right mm-hmm. um the the dap in which you so you you pay them every single month and they have you know x y and z conditions that they have to meet that the that the renter has to meet so that you know your uh, your your garbage disposal goes out and they have to fix the garbage disposal and if they don't you know the the chain either doesn't give them the full amount of rent doesn't give them the rent in general it's it, it is a trustless way to enter into business and legal agreements that already exist because I, I feel like that is an easier way for people to wrap their head around the future of smart contracts than trying to tell them about all of these you know crazy swaps and maker and, and decentralized exchanges because those are real world applications right now but those are real world applications right now for what 0.5% of the world population could even enter you know figure out how to enter into you know a, a compound swap basically. So like that, that is the, that is the example I've been giving to people. Yeah. And I think there's, there's like a million examples like that, you know, so now, so now there's a a platform called YFI who is a yield aggregator. And so what they do is they find, um, you know, places where you can accrue interest on your assets. And so you deposit your assets and then they just go and they accrue interest for them over time. And a lot of the stuff is earning double digit interest uh, annually. And sometimes even triple digits, like on crazy days or something. Uh, and so, like to me, YFI is just like a really nice savings account, or or something like that. Um, and then you could say build an application on top of that, where it says, you know, I want to pay for a subscription to something. Say I want to pay for my Netflix subscription, but instead of paying ten dollars monthly, I deposit a thousand dollars, and then I pay for my Netflix. To, subscription based on the interest that it accrues monthly and at any point you can withdraw your thousand dollars that you initially put in and cancel your subscription and then like all there you, you have a, a costless subscription other than the opportunity cost of your of your assets and there's like a million different things like that where uh like smart contracts and, and DeFi just create some really really interesting potential applications and solutions to to a lot of different like annoying things in the real world yeah. Uh, have you read Glenn Whale's book, Radical Markets? No, I need to. I, I have someone ask me about this book like once a week. Um, yeah. Yeah, to. you need to read it. Um, you, 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 but 
quick summary of basically there there are five chapters in it, five proposals from from Glenn and his uh, his co-author. But the one that most immediately obviously responds to the Ethereum network is uh, they they called the system cost. And now I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but effectively you price all of your assets. You, you set a price like, OK, I, I set a price of um, three hundred thousand dollars for my house. I pay property tax and everything based on what I pay, uh, based on what I choose to value my house at. But if someone in the world says, okay, I'll give you $300,000 for your house, there's, there's, no, there's no haggling, there's no borrowing, there's, there's none of that. They just can purchase your house. And so- Yeah, that's called the harbinger tax, right? Uh, po- I mean, possibly. I, I don't think that term was used in his book, but I, I would, I would imagine that Glenn would say that you know they didn't come up with these ideas, you know, mm-hmm. um, with with no input or with no understanding from the wider academic community. So that's possible. But you know, then you can extend that even further. You extend that to your car. You extend that to land that the government wants to buy. Like the example in the book is these hyperloops that uh, that we think are probably going to be a big part of the future, you know, 10 or 20 years from now. So you can go from LA to San Francisco in 15 minutes or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a huge problem with that would be securing the land to lay the track down. And, you know, there are, there are huge problems when either the government or private companies want to do this because they have to, they have to lay down the route for the hyperloop or their railroad track or they want to they want to put in airspace or whatever and you can't buy all the land you need right away it's it's a huge costly thing that takes years of haggling with individual landowners you know maybe some of it is owned by native peoples you know there's just this whole rigmarole you have to go through and then in this system which would exist with smart contracts and an eventual decentralized application is all of that goes away and people are could, could just pay a fair price for all of these things. And obviously that is a future that would only exist without smart contracts because if you introduced lawyers and accountants and banks into that process, it would become even more of a nightmare. Yeah, for sure. I, I, uh, there's, there actually is an interesting application of this on Ethereum already with, uh, with NFTs. Someone released it a while ago. Um, I think the domain for it is this art is not for sale or always for sale or something yeah. like that. Um, and it's essentially an NFT that has a, uh, that like that tax model baked into it where I think it's always, I think it's this NFT is always for sale and it has that exact like model from rat from radical markets. And they like reference it in the, uh, on the site and stuff. Um, there's, there's a ton of interesting stuff that can be done with that. I think it's, uh, the hardest part about that particular, uh, application from, from the book and just in general is I think it would take a really long time for people in the general public to be okay with it because it's very adversarial. And it's very, you would have to be financially literate you to, Mm -hmm. to a way that many people like not to not even talk about the entire problem of, you know, American schools don't teach financial literacy. Many people have to go to shitty schools, right? Classrooms full of 35 kids and like, Mm -hmm. you know, just American education we know in general is not great. And then you extend it to people who, you know, live in big cities where public schools are not funded. And then you're asking these people, okay, you need to accurately price everything in your, <laughs> you need to accurately price everything in your life so that you're not paying too much in taxes, but that it would be a fair price for someone to purchase. Like 
I mean, what they what they say in the book is exactly what you're talking about, which is small communities that already exist, mostly online, mostly internet native, are going to be the first adopters of a system mm-hmm. like this, and then people slowly learn through you know decades or even millennia before we get to a point where this can actually be executed. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It, this stuff it takes a really long time to kind of become comfortable with the idea of like sure this this thing that i own someone could buy from me at any given time and like that's just part of the agreement yeah so okay uh, a a question i have because i i actually do this um so i i have i i have a uni swap swap active with with eth and uni but i mean honest to god i could not tell you what it is that i am yield farming or well i could tell you what it is that i'm yield farming but i couldn't say what is actually happening in in the yield farm so when someone says you know i'm yield farming a swap what is it what is it what is their money actually doing yeah so the i'll take a step back and and say like talking about um uniswap in general the way that uniswap works is uh you they have a bunch of different pools of two tokens right so you know so the ethereum uniswap pool it contains 50 percent ethereum tokens and 50 percent uniswap tokens and then at any given time if i want to come in and swap ethereum for uniswap i sell my ethereum into that pool and it gives me uniswap tokens and then the pool automatically reprices because it always wants to have 50 percent of each so at that point the pool would say okay uniswap is worth a little bit more and ethereum is worth a little bit less does that make sense yeah yeah that makes sense cool and so then basically when you are providing liquidity for that you are putting up 50 percent ethereum and 50 percent or you know 50 percent 50 percent of whatever two tokens you provide liquidity for but let's say ethereum and uniswap you're putting up 50 percent ethereum and 50 percent uniswap at the given at the time that you are depositing or providing liquidity and then at any point in the future you can redeem that liquidity uh but you might not get back the same amount of Ethereum and Uniswap you initially put in because the prices have changed. And so as a liquidity provider, you're essentially uh, making yourself a market maker for the platform. Uh, and so in return for that, you are earning a fee on all of the trades that people make. And so uh, in slowly over time with, lar- with large volume, you'll accrue more and more of each Uniswap and, uh, and Ethereum by being a liquidity provider. Um, and then when you do that, you get back uh, essentially an IOU token that says like, you know, this is your share of the liquidity pool and you can always burn this or a part of it to get back your tokens. Uh, and so what you're doing when you're yield farming with that is you're taking that IOU token and you're staking it somewhere. And so staking it, you know, much like we're talking about smart contracts is a cool trustless way to deposit some tokens and then earn another token on top of that. And so this was kind of, I guess I'll, I'll take another step back, but, but uh, in a second, but so this was kind of the start of the study of yield farming where you're, mm-hmm. you're depositing some asset somewhere and then earning a new asset for depositing it. Um, so that's what you're doing when you are farming. And, and so generally what's happening there is the, you know, uh, a platform wants you to do a particular action. 
And so if you're Uniswap, you want people to provide liquidity on Uniswap. Right. Or if you're Compound, you want people to deposit and borrow from your money market. Or if you're Maker, you want people to, uh, you know, deposit Ethereum and borrow DAI. And so what you can do, and this was kind of spearheaded by Compound last summer, is you create incentives with your token for the people who are doing the things that you want them to do. Uh, and it's it's on the surface, it sounds very simple, but it's an incredibly radical idea for Compound to say, we're going to pay you in equity for using our platform. Like it is something right. it's it's when you think about it that way, like it is something that could never happen in like the normal financial world or just like with normal markets and companies. It like is basically impossible. But with governance tokens on on Ethereum or on any decentralized platform, it, it creates this incredibly unique and interesting dynamic where you can really merge users and owners and everyone into this like one group of people who are, can all be working together to build the best thing. And it allows these systems to pay you in their token and essentially give you partial ownership of their platform just for using it. Uh, and so that was started by Compound and that really is what like kicked off and just like really, really made the, uh, the whole DeFi ecosystem grow like crazy because everyone was like, oh my God, this is really smart. This is like a great way to attract users and to bring in capital and also further decentralize everything that we're making because we're, you know, we're distributing uh, governance of our platform to an entirely new user base. Uh, and so it's really cool. And like at the surface level, it can sound like Ponzi-nomics or, or something right. like that. But I think if you think about it a little bit more, and obviously some of these things, when you get to like the more degenerate yield farming stuff, it's mostly just gambling. You're just like playing it, playing a game, like a, game of cat and mouse with liquidity and all these different things um but but you know smaller farming on on compound and ave and stuff where you're getting five or ten percent annually or something uh it's i don't think it i don't think it's appropriate to say that it's just ponzinomics it's a really really interesting and and uh novel way to kind of give ownership and rights to a group of people who normally wouldn't um wouldn't be getting those that ownership right because you know the way centralized finance works it's uh it's insanely simple the way that banks generate money they pay you you know 0.005% to keep your cash with their institution and then they loan that same cash out to people uh at at 4% right and so they are they are paying out far less than is getting paid into them and that uh, clearly that is a system that is bad for everyone, but the banks, mm -hmm. right? The only, the only people who profit in that exchange are central banks. And I, I don't know who, who out there is, I mean, I guess there are people out there caping out for, for <laughs> banks and for, for the federal reserve and everything, but it, 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 the, the idea of, cause the, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, the utopian goal of all of this decentralized finance is to cut out that middleman to cut out the bank that's that's making 3.5 percent basically on on the money that is held in their institution is for there to be these gigantic liquidity pools of uh various cryptocurrencies and various tokens and 50 years from now 25 years from now instead of me having to 
beg this bank to let me pay them 3.5% on a house for the next 30 years. I enter into that agreement via smart contract with a gigantic liquidity pool. And as long as I'm, you know, as long as the monthly payments are there, as long as the liquidity remains there, there's no issue because it's all executed via smart contract. And it, there's, there's no need for the centralized institution to sign the papers basically. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that, that's, that's what I think one of the most powerful things uh, about all this is like, you know, the exact interaction you were talking about of, you know, I deposit my money to a bank account and then for some very small percent annually, and then the bank lends that money out to someone else for four or 5% and they're making a huge profit off of that. It's just what, you know, what compound is or what Ave is, but there's no bank in the middle. And so you are able to earn significantly better interest on your assets because the demand is still there to borrow without a bank because you know essentially the smart contract is the bank and then they're routing orders to people um, and you can actually earn real interest on your money as opposed to just getting some small amount of what actual of what the actual demand is yeah and and I so I am going through this process right now I'm I am uh, I'm, I'm trying to buy a house and I am you know literally because I have a lot of non-conventional, income streams. I am just, dude, I am just haggling with my mortgage lender. I mean, we are, ha yeah. I'm having to, to provide all kinds of crazy documentation and like, like I'm getting, I'm, I'm emailing with Dapper Labs. Like, can you guys just send me some wire receipts? Like just, it's, it's been <laughs> a nightmare and that, that doesn't exist in, yep. that doesn't exist in smart contract land because as long as the smart contract is executed by both sides, there is no, there is no reason to go further. There is no reason to, to document all of these things because that's not a part of the smart contract and, and the contract gets executed. And, and by the way, something I've realized is how insanely unfucking fair our financial system would be to someone who is one, not financially literate and two, someone who doesn't have it, you know, financial privilege, right? So, mm -hmm. so something that I got lucky with is I, I had this transaction from Dapper Labs that the underwriter for my lender would not sign off on, that they were like, there's not enough documentation on this. This could be, you know, uh, black market heroin money for all, mm -hmm. for all we think. And so that transaction had to get stricken from the underwriter. And I had to get, um, I had to get a family member to gift me money that I then wired to them. But what about all the people that exist in the world who can't, call someone up and say, Hey, can I borrow $3,000 from you for a week and then wire it back to you? Like, yeah. it, and, and just very simple stuff like that is you just don't think of that as being unfair, but that is so unfair to so many people in the world that doesn't exist in, you know, Decentraland. Yeah. That, and I think that's one of the really powerful things as well is uh, it's easy to think, you know, some of this stuff even on, on the blockchain is, it's, it's not unfair towards people with more money, but it definitely benefits them more than others. Um, for example, let's say you wanted to buy a, a million dollar home and use a compound loan to do it or a mm -hmm. maker loan. You need to put up, you know, three or $4 million to do that. You can't just, it's not going to be cheap because you have to, it's a collateralized loan. Right. Um, and so like, obviously that's not like unlocking a lot of use cases for your average person, but, but I, but I think that there's a lot of other really interesting stuff that is coming along that that will do that. Um, primarily, there's people are starting to experiment in the world 
of uh, under collateralized loans uh, on, on the blockchain. There's a company called Maple uh, Finance who's working on something like this. I, I haven't spent enough time to really dive into what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, but I think that that stuff is going to be really interesting and could potentially like that kind of stuff to me, could be a total game changer for, for the average person. Um, and then alongside that, there's um, some really cool stuff that's going on in the, in the NFT space actually with um, in uh, like, there was a, like a short YouTube documentary the other day. I can't remember the name of it, uh, but the general movement is called play to earn. And there's a couple big, uh, companies that are kind of spearheading this, but the idea is it's primarily around Axie Infinity right now. Uh, but I have a feeling it'll, you know, kind of branch out to Zed Run and other places yeah. where people are essentially, uh, you know, there's a company called Yield Guild Games and they own a bunch of Axies. And so in Axie Infinity, I've never played it personally, so I might get some of this wrong, but you can play the game. And in playing the game, I don't know what the, you know, how you exactly accrue their in-game currency but you can accrue some in-game currency that has value in the game but also you can sell for real money and people in third world countries basically uh yield guild games will lend them out axes to play with and they take a small cut of the in-game money earned and then you can basically like have your day job be playing this video game and I, I, they, they had this whole little like 20 minute documentary about it. I'll, I'll share it with you after this. I don't remember what it was called. Um, and like they're able to make more than they would on average, like at some normal job in uh, whatever third world country that the, they were talking about playing a video game on the blockchain. Uh, and, and it's crazy. And that kind of stuff is really cool and really powerful. Um, and I'm really excited to see that whole like space evolve more. Yeah. And there is that's I mean, that's another thing that we haven't even gotten to yet. But obviously, as the world, you know, becomes more digital, as more and more people are, you know, we're all, we're seeing small stuff like this. Obviously, a lot of people are working remote. A lot more people's jobs in general relate to online things, you know, the need for physical labor. Uh, it'll it will always be needed to, to some extent, but far and more far more people's jobs are going to be exclusively online as we move to the future. And that's, you know, that's, there are possibilities with Ethereum and with tokenization that have not, we haven't even scratched the surface. We don't even know where the surface is in terms of potential for smart contracts to exist that way for people to, for their jobs, for their labor to be entirely online, entirely on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, Yeah, for sure. There's, there's so much there. And like, and you know, even another like small but dumb thing, or small not dumb, uh, small but and something you wouldn't really think about is like you know, people who can't get a bank account or have a hard time getting a bank account or yep. uh, or even just who don't have that much money in their bank account and get charged like the you know banks have like a minimum monthly uh, like a fee for not having enough money in your account and stuff like that. Like the blockchain just doesn't care about that. You you can have fifty dollars in compound if you want, and you're, you're not going to get a fee. You're actually going to earn you know ten percent annually on it. And so uh, you know, while that may not sound too exciting for someone in in the United States, like there's a lot of people where if they could, you know, have a bank account where they could transact transact globally and also be earning interest on it as opposed to having it be like a a negative aspect of their life. Um, that stuff is huge, and it's only getting started. Like you're saying, there's still a lot that needs to be. Um, needs to be built upon there. 
Uh, but, well, yeah, but it's and, exciting. Because that was, again, one of the big things back in 2017 was banking the unbanked. And and something I have noticed is actually a lot of the criticism of crypto is very classist and also very um, dismissive of what people are already using crypto for in non-Western worlds, right? So mm-hmm. South America, Africa, you know, uh, uh, Nigeria is the is the big example right now. El Salvador is another one where, you know, these people are, have just been totally betrayed by their government and the way in which their government is the central banks have behaved in the way they've treated money. And without crypto, I mean, I, I don't even know where the citizens of, of you know, specifically because these are the examples I know about of El Salvador and Nigeria would be without the ability to transact in these ways. And I, I, I just I find that criticism, that that ignorance of those situations by crypto critics to be so classist and gross to basically be like, yeah, crypto, Bitcoin is tulips and bubbles and, and it's all stupid, uh, but I'm going to completely, uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to completely disregard where like this is, this is making a huge difference in the lives of people who might be worth like, you know, 500 American dollars or whatever. Yeah. I, I mean, a hundred percent. It's, I think uh, as you know, a middle-class like white person in America, like we are the hardest demographic to convince why crypto is important because like, yeah, life isn't that hard for us. It could be a lot worse. It could be um, a lot worse. Yeah. But like, so for example, my, uh, the team, the smart contracts team lead at uh, maker when I was there, this guy named Mariano, he's an awesome dude. And he lives in Argentina and he, so Argentina had last year, uh, 55% inflation. Yep. And he uh, and they have very strict rules about holding the U.S. dollar. So they they only let you buy like a couple thousand dollars of it at a time. And you can't have more than a certain amount in your bank account um, all to encourage people to hold their native currency and just get hyperinflated. Uh, but they don't have any regulation around cryptocurrency. And so he got paid. He's been working in crypto for a long time and has been paid and die the entire time or Bitcoin and then Ethereum and then die as a stable coin. Uh, and it's been a way for him and a lot of people in his life who he's reached out to to kind of be able to avoid the the hyperinflation that's affected the country um and like you know i've spoken to him and a lot of people from similar situations and like that demand is real and it's it's not them speculating on tulips it's them like trying to have their own like financial freedom from uh, a government that doesn't care about them yeah. And that, yeah. And, and I think that those examples and, and also this is um, this is something that the maxis miss, too, that like they, they again, so often when you see people making the argument for Bitcoin, for Ethereum, for smart contracts, they, they do miss these very obvious examples of like, you know, they they. They, they make these very high-minded arguments about, you know, sovereignty of currency and, you know, sound money and, and all of these things. And they just, they skip right over spots in the real world where this mm-hmm. is like, this is already happening. Um, and so I just, I don't know, that's, that's my reminder that uh, your, your hodling is for many people, for, you know, for me, for many people listening to this, it's, it takes on a very different nature than people who are actually using this in the real world already. So, okay, the the last thing that I wanted to cover it, and obviously we are just scraping the surface of all of this stuff. I mean, this is a, this is a very quick look into a world that is the last, the last thing I saw was that like the rough transactional volume of DeFi is like $85 billion a day, which is. Yeah, it's insane. 
It's insane. Um, the, the Bitcoin maximalism versus the existence of Ethereum, uh, Ethereum protocol 1599, which is going to turn Ethereum deflationary. In, in your mind, how do Bitcoin and Ethereum coexist over you know, the next five, 10 years? Yeah, you know, I, I definitely am less of an Ethereum maximalist than a lot of people you'll see on like crypto, like Ethereum DeFi Twitter. Um, I, I try my best to stay open-minded with all that because I know it's very easy to like be in an echo chamber of a bunch of people who are working together and kind of building towards the same thing and, and having your, your opinions kind of guided by that. Uh, I, I think that Bitcoin and Ethereum can coexist together pretty nicely. I, I don't really subscribe to the idea that it has to be one or the other and that like, you know, either Bitcoin's going to win out and Ethereum will go to zero or Ethereum's going to win out and Bitcoin will go to zero. Uh, they, in my mind, do two extremely different things. Um, personally, I'm significantly more excited about being a part of and owning and working on like the new age global internet than I am. Like, right. Holding. Yeah, Web 3.0. Yeah, to me, that stuff is what I find extremely interesting. And I think that uh, I think a lot of people would if they spent the time to like really learn what's going on with it. But I, I think that the like Bitcoin store of value and basically, you know, being digital gold, I don't think that narrative is going anywhere. Uh, and I think at this point, Bitcoin is pretty like uh, pretty Lindy at this point. It's been around for so oh, long. Oh, big time Lindy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't foresee a world where Bitcoin is not important in some way. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's captured such a like cultural mind share at this point. Um, but all that to be, all that to be said, you know, the, the market cap of gold is like what eight or $9 trillion. Uh, I'm not sure what the market cap of like every tech company and tech thing in the world is, but I think it might be more. Um, and if it isn't right now, I, I would, I would assume that it will be in the future as we continue to get more and more digital. And so for me, like I'm, I'm much more interested in investing in like the future of like what tech is built on than a digital store of value. But I, I hold both and I, I like both. I, I think they, I think to me, they serve two different purposes. Um, but I'm also extremely excited for, uh, EIP one five five nine. For for those who are uninformed on what it will do, essentially, right now when you pay gas fees on Ethereum to transact, you all that money goes to miners, uh, right. and what it, when this is activated, uh, a percentage of that will be instead burned uh, permanently. And at the current transactional rates, more Ethereum will be burned daily transacting than will be minted for miners and so that that's why it would turn deflationary which is uh for for the maxis for the for the people who are most interested in the applications of cryptocurrency for the reasons that bitcoin provides which is you know sound money and and fighting inflation and all of these things which uh i i actually just read this great article that uh, said bitcoin is dumb which is not meant as, as a you know a criticism or a complaint, but just that it does one thing. It does it to perfection. Um, I, I guess 
I, I am excited about protocol 1599. Cause it'll, it'll make my bags a little, you know, it, it's, it's, it, I think it'll probably be good for the bags. Although, you know, there are, there are some reasons to be, I guess, be concerned. Like, I mean, obviously that is, that would, uh, 1599 would, I, I would guess, decentivize miners a little bit. Is that correct? That was a long conversation around it. Uh, I think most of the like research and game theory ended up kind of saying like, probably not. Yeah. Um, but it'll, it'll be very interesting to see. I, obviously, miners were opposed to it during its creation and thought process and like ideation. Um, but yeah, maybe, probably not. Probably, I think the miners sure. are making a killing and, and they'll be fine. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see, but I'm not too concerned. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not particularly concerned either. Do you have any concerns about, you know, the, the Ethereum foundation and, and its leadership? Like I know, uh, like, Many of us hold Vitalik in in very high regard, hold the Ethereum Foundation in very high regard. But you know, I, I think that it, it is true that they own, you know, some gigantic portion of the Ethereum coins that exist. And that Ethereum is at the very least, do you agree with the sentiment that Ethereum is not fully decentralized at its at its heart? I do not personally. Okay, so please please explain that because that is that is a big Bitcoin maximalist uh, take. Is that the reason you can't invest in Ethereum? The reason that you can't trust Ethereum is because it is too centralized. Yeah, so I, I think like there's a, a significant difference between someone holding the, the tokens and like actually being decentralized. I also I, I don't know off the top of my head percentage of ethereum yeah i I, I don't know either and it it changes right because they sell tokens more tokens get printed so on and so forth yeah and so i I don't know um but at this point ethereum uh really the who guides and does things with ethereum is not decided by vitalik or any anyone at the ethereum foundation uh there is a really large and and uh, thriving group of people who are doing research and um proposing updates and solutions and working on uh, clients and all this stuff that have no relation to the Ethereum Foundation. Uh, I, I fully believe that if everyone in the Ethereum Foundation disappeared off the face of the planet tomorrow, Ethereum would be totally fine. I, totally I really, fine. Like yeah. nothing would happen. Uh, and so to me, that is a good enough reason to say that it is thoroughly it is thoroughly decentralized. Um, I. I I would love to hear the actual argument for like what the Ethereum Foundation could do to like screw over Ethereum. I don't think there's a very valid one. Uh, well, this is this is what I've heard, and again, uh, I also, so my best friend in real life is just a gigantic Bitcoin maxi. Like, <laughs> like could not be like won't won't buy Ethereum. You know, like just just thinks it's stupid. Is is uh, all in all in on Bitcoin and everything, and and just his thing is like, well, you know, who who controls the monetary supply? Um, you know, doesn't doesn't trust Vitalik, doesn't trust the Ethereum Foundation, um, doesn't think it's sound money, so on, so on and so forth. But yeah, I mean, that's that those the criticisms I've heard are, you know, no no defined money supply. Don't doesn't trust Vitalik, you know, think Vitalik could fuck everything up for everyone, which yeah. is it, not an opinion, not an opinion I hold, but it is an opinion that I hear. Yeah. So I think the the argument around the, you know, not knowing the future 
like monetary policy of Ethereum. I that's that's one of the reasons I think Ethereum and Bitcoin can coexist very nicely. Uh, I personally have no issue with not knowing the future monetary policy. I'm very confident that in general, the people who are holding and you know supporting the Ethereum ecosystem are not interested yeah. in making the monetary policy something where we all get screwed over. That just like it sounds. I, the game theory there doesn't really play out in my head very well. Um, and at the same time, like, you know, I think that there is value to, in ideating on these things and building on them. Um, and there's also value in, in you know, has, having one thing and sticking to it. Uh, and that's, again, why I hold both Ethereum and, and Bitcoin, because I think that they they can kind of serve different purposes there. And I, But it's also the reason that I'm extremely bullish on Ethereum is, like, uh, you know, it's it's growing, and the amount of people who are involved and thinking about it and trying to make it better and make it more efficient and make it greener and all these different things uh, is only growing. And yes, it's nice to have like a hardened currency and hardened rules, but it's also cool to to have something that there are a lot of really really smart people who are spending all their time trying to make better. Yeah, I mean it's it's nice to have one inelastic thing to own and also nice to have something elastic that can change as the demands and as the network needs it right like the yeah. the elasticity of ethereum is is for sure tied to its bull case if it wasn't like if 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 ethereum functioned the same way you know if it uh, if Vitalik died the way I think that Satoshi died or whatever, uh, and, and there weren't people actively working on changing and making it better, uh, a lot of this DeFi stuff would, would not be possible, just would never, would never have came about. Yeah, exactly. And it's one of, like, to me, Bitcoin's hardened like, software and, and kind of the way they do things is a feature, and Ethereum's flexibility and, and upgradability is also a feature. And it's just two different types of features for whoever wants what particular thing yeah for sure all right i think that was uh i think that was a good discussion uh, uh winter winter gas prices going down that 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 this is the this is actually the the end all the end all be all is is what what function can we use to make ethereum more usable because obviously paying insane gas fees is it's fine for people who are making, you know, $50,000 transactions, but to make smaller transactions on Ethereum, it doesn't, it, from a cost benefit perspective, it doesn't make any sense because the gas is so high. Yeah. I actually, I don't think that Ethereum gas prices will ever go down to a point where uh, it makes sense for someone to transact a hundred dollars. Yeah. Uh, but uh, layer two scaling is what will be the kind of the, the quote unquote solution to, to the gas prices. And so the, the like really solid and robust layer two scaling, that is what the, what they do is they'll be checkpointing all of their transactions on the Ethereum network. And so that will maintain sufficiently high gas prices because, you know, all of the transactions on layer two are being stored eventually, you know, they're being rolled up into bundles of transactions and stored on Ethereum. Um, but the transactions themselves on layer two will be very cheap. Um, and so you've already like, you know, Matic network has blown up like crazy. And there's, right. there's other ones that are in the works. Uh, ZK sync is one, and that's a zero knowledge roll up layer two. Uh, and then there's uh, Arbitrum, I think it's pronounced or something like that. And that's an optimistic roll up. Uh, obviously you don't have time to get into what all these different things do. And I think their mainnet launches in a couple of days. It launches in May. 
uh, maybe the 28th. Uh, and then there's Optimism, which is another optimistic roll-up um, platform. And so th I think really the long-term solution for most people is going to be uh, moving off of layer one and onto layer two and uh, and transacting there. And what will be interesting is, is how we handle interoperability between all these different layer twos. Um, it's going to be really really interesting to see how that all plays out. I, I, I'm not totally sure. It's not an area of I have insane expertise on personally. Um, but I think if people have enjoyed transacting on Matic network and doing all of that, uh, there's there's going to be even more stuff like that in the future. Uh, and, and I think that's really going to be how gas fees are cheaper for your average person. Yeah, which is uh, we're all we are all looking forward to that. I'm certain. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, Okay, actually, I, I wanted to I want to touch on some NFT stuff before we get out of here. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so I I I am super bullish on CryptoPunks. I I think that there there is um now I'm not like the the Twitter account that like made the case that CryptoPunks will be more valuable than Bitcoin or whatever, but I I do <laughs> feel like there are enough rich people, enough cultural acceptance of NFTs. Like I I don't feel like CryptoPunks are have any risk of, of going to zero or anything mm -hmm. like that. Kind of what's your, what's your investment thesis right now on top shot Zed run, you know, all this shit on open C and, and rareable and everything. Yeah. So, you know, I think really probably the biggest transition for me over the last few months is I've been spending a lot more time and, uh, you know, kind of transitioning some of my investment from, particular nfts to getting involved with DAOs that are buying nfts yeah um and that's been really great so far um and so there's you know i'm not sure if there's a like an official crypto punks dow the flamingo dow owns a ton of crypto punks uh they're a they're a really interesting dow they were started by um open law who is like a uh, legal smart contract company. I don't know exactly what they do, to be honest, but so they're like an official Wyoming LLC with like a 99 person cap. Uh, so I think they're at the cap right now. I wanted to join. Um, and so they like, they bought a ton of CryptoPunks. Um, and so I, personally, I own a couple CryptoPunks. Uh, I obviously have a, a lot of NBA Top Shot moments. Uh, and then mostly what I've been doing is, is finding projects that I think are interesting and looking to get involved with with DAOs that are working on them because, you know, I, I think uh, getting connected with other people who are either smarter than me or more involved in these NFTs than I am and uh, and just kind of using their using their knowledge to help help me pick the, pick the winners is also really valuable. Um, but personally, as far as individual nfts go uh i i think i'm i'm, I'm very interested by on-chain generative art stuff i think that that kind of stuff is yeah. really interesting uh generally if i'm buying an nft that isn't a crypto punk or like a top shot moment or a zed horse i'm probably pretty okay if that nft goes to zero it has to be something that i just like personally and i'm not yeah. looking to flip that's that's about, I, I think those, and then I guess I, I am pretty, pretty confident in uh, Larva Lab's second project, uh, Autoglyphs as well. And some of the stuff on art blocks, um, like ringers, and there's a few other things. Um, and if you haven't checked those out, I'd recommend it on, it's, I think it's artblocks.io. Uh, they, 
their whole thing is made for like on-chain generative art projects and stuff. And there's some really cool stuff that's that's uh, that's been on there. Um, and then there's some like native OG crypto artists like Xcopy uh, and stuff. And I have a feeling that their stuff will appreciate over time. Uh, but for, for a lot of that, I'm not an art critic. I don't really know very much about those markets or the nature of those markets. Uh, and so I try, I don't really speculate on them because I just, I don't know enough. It's not a place where I feel like I have an edge. Um, but I, I, I generally agree. I think most NFTs will probably not be worth very much in the long term, uh, at least the ones that are out right now. I think that the way I kind of view NFTs right now is like digital collectibles are cool, but there's a lot more that can be done there. And so right now we're just kind of like learning and people got hyped and learned about NFTs and learned how to buy them. And now we have to go and make all the actual tooling around them and make the really cool shit so that in a few right. years, NFTs can kind of actually like, you know, do everything that people talk about the potential that they could do kind of in the same way that Ethereum had their ICOs in 2017. And then three years later, the companies that were legitimate and serious and, and really building came out the other end with awesome products that now have real use cases and people are using. I think that a lot of NFTs that don't have serious cultural importance, like CryptoPunks, uh, will will go through that same process. And so that's kind of how I feel about like Top Shot and stuff. Like I, not I don't I mean people can look at my account. I don't really sell. I'm just sitting holding my Top Shot stuff. I think in the long term there's going to be really interesting stuff with, you know, uh, player and fan interactions and for sure cool stuff at games and uh, you know like a Moment Ranks now has like their daily fantasy stuff. I, I think that that whole space is just going to just going to continue to grow. Um, and like kind of the same thing with Zed. I, I have some Zed horses. I don't really race them or anything. I just kind of have them. I don't really know. I'm too busy to like spend the time perfecting my stable. Um, but you know, I think it's really interesting that they have an actual product with a use case for their NFTs and you know, you could potentially very cool. Yeah. And the, the fact that you could buy a horse and like have a winner and have that be a way for you to make money consistently over time. is like, just so interesting and the demand really seems to be there to to do it um so i'm really excited about stuff like that i'm not nearly as excited about like you know the 15th ripoff of crypto punks that you can buy on OpenSea. i don't i don't really participate in, in those markets very much unless there's something that i just really like yeah i i'm i'm generally with you um i i've moved my like my bullish time frame for for top shot back from like waiting for next nba season to like you know three four five years or whatever. Yeah. Cause I, I, I think that, um, you, I mean, you made, you made the totally astute point, which is people want utility for these things. They want to be able to play games. They want like people love talking about their Zed horses and keeping them in the stable and, you know, breeding them and doing all these things. Like people are, they, they love that. So people want to be able to show them off. They want to be able to, they just want to be able to do digital things with their items that they own in the metaverse. Yeah. Totally, and I think that's. And I think what you're saying about pushing back your your bull case for Top Shot is is astute, and that, that's kind of where I where I am as well. I think, like, if if your idea around Top Shot was I want to buy some really good Series One moments, and they're going to be the most valuable things on the platform, uh, I don't think you're in any way wrong. But like, in order for Series One to be valuable, you need to basically get to the point where, and I, I'm I'm betting on this happening, but Top Shot becomes an important part of NBA culture. And it is the way that you collect top, like NBA collectibles in the future. Um, and I, you know, as of right now, it seems like it's on a path to do that. And then if, you know, in five years when 
a lot of very digitally native people are actively doing Top Shot and a part of that, they're going to want the best moments and the rarest moments. And that's the same thing, like, you know, when whatever super rare baseball cards people wanted to buy from like 1920 came out, people weren't buying them at that exact moment. And then like two years later, people were like, oh my God, these are so rare. I, I need to right. have this. It's, you know, it's a hundred years later where people are like, wow, you know, baseball cards are a very important part of baseball culture. And I have the disposable income to buy in and have this like special super rare thing. It does. It's not like a one year, uh, a one year process. It's a much longer thing of becoming ingrained in culture and having relevance. And like the same thing happened with CryptoPunks. CryptoPunks were around for four years and no one really cared about them. And now NFTs have become so important on Ethereum and they're the first Ethereum NFT. And so they've created this, this narrative where people want to have that. Uh, and I, I don't really see a reason why something like Top Shot or, or Zed wouldn't kind of follow suit with a lot of that stuff. But I think people have significantly too short of a, like of a timeline in their heads of what that looks like. Yeah. All right. There we go. I think that was, uh, was a pretty good discussion. Uh, you guys have anything super cool coming up on, uh, on club top shot or anything you want to, you want to direct people to online right now? Uh, let's see club top shot. I think nothing directly in the pipeline. Uh, we have with summer league was just, it's like just starting to get announced. So yeah. So hopefully, dope. Hopefully we can uh, start to do something with Summer League at some point, or I don't know. I'd love to go to Vegas for it. Just like excited yeah. to get back out. That'd be and do very things. cool. Um, so maybe keep an eye out for something around that. Uh, outside of that, mostly just been building Fractional Art, which is a NFT fractionalization platform, and hoping that we can launch that relatively soon. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm very. I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited to fractionally own. A CryptoPunk to be able to be able to buy in. That's uh yeah. So whenever whenever that gets launched, I will uh I'll definitely be shilling my one nineteenth of uh of an alien CryptoPunk or uh or whatever. Uh, so thank you very much, Andy. Uh, everyone, we will be uh we'll be back next week. Yeah. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today. With each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.